Lifestyle choices and environmental factors impact your brain health and the physiology and psychology of your mental health. When you're ready to turn your brain on to get your game on, listen to In Your Head Radio. Now here's your host, Lee Richardson. We have got a great show today. I've got Holly Toronto, and Holly is a certified master level coach through Health Coach Institute, and she has four years of experience in helping highly driven women stop dieting and build resilience to toxic beauty messages. And we get them, they stream at us 24-7, whether we want them or not. She uses an intuitive and spiritual approach that guides her clients towards self-trust, confidence, over their entire being, their body, mind, and soul. From this place, her clients are able to make self-guided decisions and finally live the life they desire in the body they live in today. Holly, thank you so much for being with me today. Thank you for having me, Lee. I'm so excited to have this conversation with you. And I think this conversation is so timely. I saw an analysis a couple of days ago that reported that the cases of eating disorders in the United States has increased by 30% since March 2020. And I mean, the spike is a result of a lot of isolation, a lot of anxiety that's come from the virus and from the pandemic. But even before the pandemic, in the United States, 9% of the population will struggle with an eating disorder at some point in their life. Mm -hmm. So I think it's a great time to talk about this. Oh, yeah. I mean, I couldn't agree more. And that that 30% increase doesn't shock me in the slightest, especially because and I'm sure we'll get into this as as we talk. But, um, you know, when when we're under times of like stress and anxiety and uncertainty, which kind of those are the words that would describe most of 2020 and a lot of 2021 so far, we search for things that we can control. Right. We want to create a sense of certainty. And we're, we're told that we can control our bodies if we just eat the right diet and we exercise and all of these types of things. And so when we're searching for that, that control and that certainty, it's easy to kind of put that onto our bodies versus deal with what's actually happening in our external environment. And so that makes a lot of sense to me. Um, but, yeah, this all existed before the pandemic for sure. And, you know, the, the stat that really kind of got me into this work was learning that 90% of women are dissatisfied with their bodies. And when we see numbers like that, like to me, I'm like, that's a pandemic, right? And that's something that, um, you know, is, is a, a product of, of nurture versus nature. We're not born hating our bodies. And so it's, it's, we have to really start to question, okay, like where does, where does a number like that come from? Where does that stem from? And I'm sure we'll start to unpack that today. Well, and really, stop and think about it. We are our own worst critic. Mm. I mean, we are always, we have a natural tendency to want to be better, faster, stronger, slimmer. I mean, you know, body shaming is done by parents, by siblings, friends, enemies, schoolmates, the media. You know, why is she wearing that? That's not flattering Mm. at all. I mean, I've heard those conversations yeah, absolutely. And, you know, we're told from a very young age, probably around the age of four or five, we start to get an understanding of where our 
individual body falls into like the social hierarchy. Essentially, we start to learn like this is a good body and this is a bad body from a very, very young age. And that is influenced uh, predominantly by parents, peers and media. And so we're taught these things and it, it, it makes a lot of sense that we're just going to um, sort of embody that throughout the course of our lives and can compare ourselves to these really unrealistic standards of beauty for, for, for like, it, it's, it's, it's something that's just so normalized um, because we, we learn it from such a young age. Well, we do. And I mean, and think about it, you know, if you grow up in the, in the United States, you have a mirror in just about every room of the house. Mm-hmm. And you, when you start looking at that and somebody, Oh, go back and fix your hair, Lee. Mm-hmm. That, okay. Well, that starts my, that hurts my self-esteem. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah. I mean, it's like, especially for, for young children where what, like what's, what's, what, what should we really be focusing on when we're kids, when we're adolescents and growing up, like, should we be focusing on the size of our body? Should we be focusing on our hair or should we be out and playing and getting messy and looking ridiculous and wearing, um, silly outfits and testing the boundaries and things like that? Like that's, that's what those ages are for, right? Like not to, not to be, um, you know, sort of conformed to whatever we were expected whatever is expected of us from a aesthetic perspective like that's not what's important I mean it's it's not important at any age but if we just look at a lot of you know like a lot of eating disorders and things like that start around the age of like eight nine ten years old right and it's like we're giving children the wrong thing to focus on oh absolutely and and you know I've done a little bit of research on eating disorder for past shows, and this just amazed me that at least one death every 62 minutes yeah. comes from an eating disorder. Yeah. That's, yeah. I mean, people think that, oh, it's no big deal. You know, laugh it off, laugh off the, fo- the fat jokes or, mm-hmm. or, or the skinny jokes because there's just as much shaming on being too skinny as there is too fat. Mm-hmm. And while your focus is on women, there's a lot of body shaming that goes on within men too. Oh, yeah. Oh yeah. And yeah, it, it it goes across gender, that's for sure. Mm-hmm. But at at what age have you found in your experience that it becomes the most devastating? Mm. Mm. Yeah, this is a really interesting question and I think if I look at it from a client perspective, a lot of the clients, the, the vast majority of the clients that I work with are about 30 plus, right? And so they've they've done the dieting, they've done the the body shaming, they've done all of the things to try to get their bodies to conform to society's expectations. And they get to a point where they're just like ready. They're like ready to like let that go and start nourishing and caring for their bodies and just feeling comfortable in the bodies that they're in. And so it's like, they've they've sort of reached their their rock bottom sort of say at that point and, and but that's sort of like the client that i work with if we look at the the devastating impacts of this right now um i would say that teenagers are the ones that are struggling the most um i have worked with teen clients and um it's pretty astounding to me how much more challenging it is for me to um, pull these issues apart with them and to challenge them and to help them build resilience and awareness and all of those things um, because of the influence of social media. And so 
th- this younger generation, this this Gen Z is spending the vast majority of their time online, especially during the pandemic. So they're spending time on Instagram and TikTok and Snapchat and all of these image-centric social media platforms. And they're seeing these influencers with perfect ideal bodies and they're compare and they're seeing all of these diets and new tricks and, and tools that they can use to shrink their bodies. And it's like they are inundated with way more information and way more images than most previous generations ever had to contend with in their life. Um, and, and that is having a tremendous impact on teen girls. You know, I watched the documentary, I believe it's on Netflix, um, The Social Dilemma, about um, just social media and its impact on everyone across age, across gender. Um, but really, it, what was shocking to me was that um, past 2009, right, so 2009 was like really when um, social media started to become much more mainstream and people were on it more regularly and teenagers were getting access to it. It's it's astounding and, and, and really incredibly heart-wrenching to see the levels of suicide rates that increased for teenage girls around that time. Um, and so I would say dev- from a devastation perspective, it's, it's, it's really on that teen, that teenager age. Well, you know, we've made our society has become comparative because you're right. We we look at everything online and what are we doing? We're comparing ourselves to what we see. And anytime you compare, you're going to force a winner mm-hmm. and a loser. And that's, you know, that and it's interesting to me because when I think of ballet dancers, that group of people, I think, have undergone and I've read about it over the years the amount of shaming and stress. I mean, if you gain one pound, mm-hmm. you're you can be, you know, pulled from the from apart. Yeah. Um, and when I think about that, what is that? The what is that telling people? Mm-hmm. You know that you've got to be picture perfect. I mean, when you close your eyes and you think of a ballet dancer, what do you think about? Yeah, you see that like perfect ideal like life you know thin body right very thin those long those long thin legs and you know not everybody that wants to dance ballet can look like that yeah 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 (laughs) that body type is not achievable for for everyone and yeah you you bring up an interesting point with a ballet dancer who might lose her job essentially if she gains weight and and what she will do or he will do to maintain that body in order to uh, keep their job. Right. And, and if you think about it from, from that perspective, it's like what they're trying to protect is a sense of survival, right? Like we need money in our society in order to survive. We need a job. And so it's like, wow, okay. Like my sense of survival is, 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 is depending on me maintaining this body. Right. Um, but like that, that goes beyond even just ballet dancers. Like, you know, I felt that way as a health coach because I got into this work as a health coach because I had a very disordered relationship with food in my body. And I, you know, I had this journey where I was able to like eat this perfect diet and lose lots of weight and like look like quote unquote, like what like a woman is supposed to look like and have the ideal body. But mind you, my, um, you know, my hair was falling out. I had digestive issues. I felt stressed and anxious around food constantly. Um, I was not healthy, even if it appeared that I was quote unquote healthy because I was 
thinner, right? And so I needed to go on my own healing journey to heal my relationship to my body because that wasn't sustainable. And so I, and on that journey, I, I found a practice called intuitive eating, which we can certainly talk more about, um, that helped me learn how to care for my body from a weight neutral perspective. And, and what that meant was my body needed to weight restore and because the weight that I was at was underweight from where I was, my body's meant to be. And so I went on, I, I ended up gaining weight, like gaining back the weight that I had lost. And there was a part of me that felt like, oh no, well, I'm a health coach. And so if I put on this weight, people are going to think I'm a failure and they're not going to want to work with me and all of these things. And so there's a lot happening for people um, from a survival perspective. Like that's just my journey. But I think about, you know, other people, clients that I've worked with who feared that if they didn't lose weight or if they put on weight, that they would never find a partner, right? They would never find love or they would never, you know, get the promotion at work. And so I have so much compassion for people who are struggling with these issues because it's usually never about just the body, right? It's about what they think that ideal body will get them or what they will lose if they don't achieve it. Well, and you know, I have a, a friend and she, she has two girls and they both are very, very much into dance. And I was talking with one of the young ladies, she's 16 and, and uh, uh, about this, you know, that we were going to do this radio show. And I said, what do you, do you hear comments? And she said, oh yeah, I've heard in, in dance class, I can see your lunch suck in your stomach. Mm. What an unhealthy relationship that mm. creates with food mm. for her. Yeah. I mean, yeah. and th that to me is where a lot of it starts is however that with food begins mm. and then it continues. And I, you know, how do you, how do you take an unhealthy relationship and make it healthy? It's not as, I mean, as you said, you work with a lot of people that have been on, you know, every diet that's out there, they've tried it and nothing seems to work for them. Mm -hmm. So for people that have an unhealthy relationship with food, how do they normalize that? Yeah, great question. So, and to speak to the piece about, you know, going on diet after diet and nothing's working, what I really just want to level set for listeners is that that's not your fault right? Our bodies are actually acutely resistant to the experience of deprivation and restriction, which is what a diet is, no matter how you try to dress it up, right? Anytime that you, you know, reduce calories or you cut out certain macronutrients, you're putting your body into a, um, a starvation mode. And our bodies can can maintain that for a certain amount of time until these really intelligent survival mechanisms kick in. And our energy levels decrease so that we stop expending so much energy and our metabolism de decreases so that we can serve more. Right. So these are things that our bodies do. Oh, and, and then we also load up our, our brains know to load up on cravings. Right. So that kind of in trying to get us to eat. Right. And that's why people have these experiences of being able to be, quote unquote, so good for a while. And then they quote unquote, fall off the wagon and have a binge episode, right? And they think that that's their fault. But no, that's actually, that's what's happening from a, like a biological perspective. And even also from a psychological perspective, because I have a lot of people saying like, oh, I gave up dieting a long time ago, but they don't even realize that from a psychological perspective, even the mere thought of, I can't have that food or that food is bad, or, you know, I have to stay away from this, whatever that might be, can create erratic thoughts and behaviors around those foods. And so it's super insidious and, and creates that unhealthy relationship with food, which was what we were talking about. Um, but your, your question around how do we begin to normalize it, the, the number one resor 
resource that I can suggest, and this is what I use in my coaching programs with my clients, is a book called Intuitive Eating. And intuitive eating, there's 10 principles in that book. Uh, And I'm not going to get into all of them right now. I'm just going to sort of summarize the key principle of that book, which is probably going to be very confusing for a lot of people. And that's why I want to talk about it. Um, So there's a principle in this book called make peace with food. And what that means is giving yourself unconditional permission to eat whatever you want, whenever you want it. And a lot of people hear a health coach like me say that and they're like, are you are you crazy? <laughs> like, What kind of health coach would say eat whatever you want whenever you want it? And the thing is, is that when, like I said before, oftentimes or not often every all of the reactions or the out of control experiences that we have around food, whether that's eating past the point of fullness, binging, um, things like, yeah, like just feeling out of control around food. All of that stems from a place of restriction, right? A place of, I can't have that. And then our bodies, that that thing, it becomes a scarce resource and it becomes much more enticing to us, right? And so what unconditional permission to eat does is it sort of levels the playing field around, amongst foods. And it allows us to get out of this like really emotionally heightened reaction around food and calms our nervous system so that we can approach each eating experience from a really calm place and say, okay, I'm allowed to eat what I want, right? I can have pizza. I can have salmon. I can have fruit. I can have grains. I can have what I want, right? And from this really calm place where I'm like at the seat of authority in my relationship to food, what would I choose to eat right now? And, and that, that's essentially what intuitive eating guides us to do. And where that leads us is that we end up eating this vast variety of foods that are pleasurable and they're satisfying and we're eating when we're hungry and we're stopping when we're, we're full. And it leads us to just feel really calm and at peace around food versus feeling like food is something that's constantly controlling us. Well, you know, I think about growing up, I, my mom, anytime I was sick, she would make a baked potato mm-hmm. <laughs> with butter and, you know, cheddar cheese on the top. And that I th- it was a placebo effect, but I immediately felt better mm-hmm. when that baked potato arrived. So we all have comfort food yeah. that, you know, and, and I think it, it was always OK for me to have a bat because that was that's what made me feel better. Mm-hmm. So what I, what you're, I hear you say is we have to reframe our thoughts around food mm-hmm. instead. Of, it's not bad or good, yep. but it's it's what we choose. Mm-hmm. That's it. That's exactly it. That's a big part of intuitive eating is is rooting out what's called the diet mentality. And a big part of the diet mentality is putting moral labels on food like good, bad. Um, evil, sinful, you know, like even like healthy, unhealthy, all of those sort of labels that we place on food um, creates, again, like hierarchies amongst foods, right? And like can make us have adverse experiences around foods that we deem as quote unquote bad because on some level we're perceiving we're not allowed to have it. And then we end up eating more than we actually really need to eat because we're worried, our bodies are worried that they're going to, we're never going to give us that that us ourselves access to those foods again. Well, you know, it's interesting because what I experience a lot, I work with a lot of clients with anxiety and depression, and there's a lot of all or nothing thinking. Yeah. 
And I see that with people thinking around their food, too. You know, I'm either going to have everything I want or I'm not going to have anything. I'm going to be so, so good. And you can be so, so good for how long? Mm -hmm. Yep. That's it. Before you're like, oh, like I just need to eat something pleasurable. right? And then you end up eating the whole box of cookies versus just a couple of cookies and being satisfied. You know, you're right. When I think I can have whatever I want, I can eat two cookies and be quite happy with those two cookies. I don't need the box. But I can remember growing up, um, particularly, you know, going through puberty, I got a little chubby. And I would get, you know, the Girl Scout cookie time a year would come. And, you know, I would think, oh, I'd eat the whole box. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. I had a very similar experience growing up because... In my house, we didn't have access to those foods. So I didn't have the Girl Scout cookies or, you know, the, you know, the sugary snacks, like none of that was in my house. And, but my best friend who lived next door, she had all the foods, anything you want. And so I'd go over to her house after school and I would, you know, binge my face off. Like I would, <laughs> I would eat them all. I would eat all of the the fruit by the foot and all of the Girl Scout cookies and all of the chips. And, and then I would feel sick. Right. And and it's because they were a scarce resource to me. Um, And, you know, I see it time and time again with my clients. We we do exercises around this where a lot of times they'll say like, oh, no, I can't I can't keep like chips and dip in the house because I'll eat it all. Right. And it's like, okay, all right. So you obviously don't trust yourself around those foods. And now it's time for us to kind of start to build trust with yourself. And so we'll actually have them go buy those foods and keep them in the house and create intentional eating experiences around them. So like, okay, get out the chips, get out the dip, sit down, pour a nice, like, you know, a nice drink, put them in a nice bowl and sit and eat them and be present with it and notice what's happening for you. Notice the feelings, notice the sensations, notice how it tastes. Are you really enjoying this? And it's really interesting to see what happens as they start to practice bringing these like quote unquote trigger foods into their home and having intentional um, experiences around eating them is like, oh, they're not as, it's not as charged anymore. Like they can keep them in the house and maybe the the bag of chips goes stale because, (laughs) you know, they don't, they don't need to eat it all in one sitting. Um, Or maybe they do, but they do it over a longer period of time and they don't feel sick after. And, and that's what intuitive eating allows for us to, to create. It's just like feeling really chill, really peaceful around food. So do most people have trigger foods? I would say so. Yeah, definitely. When they first start working with me for some, it's like, you know, they're the salty people. So they have like the chips and the dips for others. It's like, you know, sweets and chocolates and cookies and things like that. Most people I would say do. And so you don't try to delete those foods. You try to accept them and be comfortable around them and eat normal amounts. It sounds like. Exactly. It's like taking your power back from them because um, when, when it's a trigger food, it's like in your perceiving it as such, it's like that food has the power over you, that inanimate object, those chips have the power over you versus you being in the seat of power over them and, and being able to choose. This is how much I want to eat right now. And I'm, I'm satisfied with that. Yeah. I mean, the thought of some bag of chips having power over me makes me feel like, Oh, I, I don't want that. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, it kind of puts it in perspective, right? It does. So you do a lot of work with with women Mm -hmm. and you work individually? 
Yeah, I work. Um, I do individual client work, but I also have two group coaching programs that I run with my business partner. Um, her name is Julie Olamacher, and we have a, a, a program for women called Homecoming, where we're doing the, exactly this work. We start with intuitive eating and making peace with food, and then we move into body image work, um, which was a little bit about what we talked about at the beginning. And there's a couple of other pillars in there. Um, and that's an incredibly powerful way to work on a lot of the stuff that we had talked about today. And then we have a training program as well for other coaches who want to be able to be well-versed in coaching on these issues with their clients as well. But then I also do private coaching. So is part of it understanding nutrition or is it just coming to peace with food and, and the, the motto, I eat what I eat? Yeah, a lot less of it has to do with nutrition, honestly, because many of the clients that come to work with with me privately or in my group coaching programs, they actually know a lot about nutrition already because they've done every diet. And so it's it's actually a lot more of a mindset experience around food versus like a what, like a what you're eating type thing. So it's it's rooting out that diet mentality. It's finding peace with food. It's getting out of the binary thinking. Um and yeah, coming back to like a grounded place where food doesn't have the control over you anymore. Um, and then you eat from that, you know, really empowered place. Don't you think that fear keeps you in that binary position? Oh, definitely. Definitely. I mean, we talked a little bit before about in the beginning about certainty. And I think when we, we when we have two options, there's a lot more certainty <laughs> versus being in a gray area or, you know, being in a place of like, choice or whatever. It, it's a lot scarier outside of the binary, for sure. We like neat little boxes. <laughs> yes, we do. We certainly do. Yep. But you know, I'm amazed at how our physical appearance, how we equate that with our self-worth. Mm -hmm. And think about it, you know, think about the TV shows, you know, the fat guy's always the funny one. Mm -hmm. um, there's stereotypes that we place. And a lot of that is media. But I think that we grow up with, on, a, on a subconscious level with these subtypes tied to these images. Do you agree with that? Oh, absolutely. I mean, it's called fat phobia and weight stigma, and it's baked into our culture. Um, and, it's, and it's super problematic in that way. Well, when you say our culture, do you mean just the United States or is that a global thing? I wouldn't say it's a global thing. I would say it's a Western thing for sure. Like I would definitely say this is is true in you know in Europe, um, in Western cultures. I'm unsure if it's true everywhere, but um, you know there's some cultures that celebrate bigger bodies and you know don't demean them. Um, but in our culture, for sure, uh, Western culture, thin thin seems to be supreme. Well, I think culture has a lot to do with food because, you know, think about uh, Americans, Thanksgiving, um, the traditional dinner. I mean, we, we all, we, I have more emotional memories tied to Thanksgiving because of the smells, what I would mm -hmm. smell when I would walk into the house. So I think, you know, culture does have a lot to do with it. And I think, too, your life experiences, how you grow up, um, you said it affected you. you. You didn't grow up with that you know, sugar and chips and stuff in your house. So what did you do when you got a chance to visit? Just went nuts. And I don't think you're, you're, you're by far not the only one. There's no doubt about that. <laughs> Absolutely so I think, not. <laughs> I think there's a lot of good advice that we, that you can share with us and kind of what give people some, when we'll come back from break, give people some direct ideas 
on or maybe even share some exercises that you do with people in your training and in your group because I'd like everybody to walk away feeling more in control and having something that they can do about it. Absolutely. We'll be back after these messages. It's Merging you just hate it when someone starts a sentence by saying, don't take this the wrong way, but according to Elizabeth Bernstein of the Wall Street Journal, we all do this on occasion. Some people refer to these phrases as tee-ups. That seems fitting. What do you do with a golf ball? You tee it up and then give it a giant wallop. Tee-ups like, to tell you the truth, supposedly soften the blow. But if you are taking the trouble to announce your honesty now, maybe you've been telling too many teradiddles, flummery, and fiblets. Being on the wrong side of a tee-up can be confusing for the listener. What are other words for confusion and frustration? Wouldn't dream and jargoggle. Maybe it would be best to try to remain pricknickety. That means totally above board and precise. It's marching I'm Carolyn Davidson, and you can have fun challenging your words-you-never-heard vocabulary with my new app, Too Funny for Words. We're back. Now here is your host, Lee Richardson. talking a lot about intuitive eating in the first part of the show and you know it sounds so easy to just say okay I'm at peace with what I eat I can eat however much I want but I don't think it's quite that easy for some people I think it's a real struggle Holly do you have some tips that you could share with our listeners Oh, absolutely. And you're 1000% right, Lee, in that I I can make it sound really flower, flowery and easy just talking about it. <laughs> and I've also lived it for the past five years. Um, but it's, it's not an easy process. And, you know, we had kind of ended on the before the break talking about fear and uncertainty and things like that. And a big piece of this work is building trust with yourself. And I would say that we we don't necessarily learn how to trust ourselves from from a young age right if you think about our eating experiences are with the best of intentions but our eating experiences are, are sort of informed by and dominated by parents or caregivers right we're kind of told what we're going to eat we're told how much to eat we're told to clear our plate we're told to eat when we're hungry or not told to eat if we're full you know it, it, it we're we're sort of knocked out of our sense of autonomy when it comes to food from from very young ages, and so reclaiming that um, in adulthood and beyond is 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 really can be really really challenging. On top of that, too, we were also talking about how our culture sort of demonizes people in larger bodies, and there's weight stigma and fat phobia that are baked into our culture, and so that can make getting off the diet bandwagon really scary because it's like, oh, well, what, what will I give up? Right. If I, if I'm no longer dieting, right. What, will I not lose weight? Um, you know, will I, will I be, you know, ostracized from the community because I'm not adhering to like what I'm supposed to do. Um, and so there's a lot of fear that goes into it. And I just want to name that and say, that's totally, totally valid. Um, as far as tips are concerned, the place that I would start when it comes to intuitive eating is 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 to pick up the book. Like it's it's 
aside from working with a coach um, or, a, you know, somebody who's trained in this space, that is the way that you, are, that you can start to practice this, at least read it and, and understand where this is coming from. Um, but I would say that, like, if you could kind of take the exercise from the previous segment that we talked about, the making peace with food segment, where you're allowing yourself to sit and eat mindfully these quote unquote trigger foods um, slowly and with intention that over time that you will start to, that that food will start to, to lessen its hold on you. And so that's like, that's one specific tip that I can offer. Um, as it relates to intuitive eating. However, oh, did you have something you want to say about that? Because I, I could go on and on with, with tips. Well, no, I, just, I was going to say, so do you, you know, do you pick the, your biggest, what you love the most, where you, that where you doubt that you can have the, the, any control, do you start there? Or do you start with something that you feel, you know, reasonable about? Yeah, maybe I could control that. Because, um, mm. I mean, I could see, Telling someone, you know, what will start gain confidence, start with something that you feel like you have a 50% shot at achieving. And then when you achieve that, that builds your confidence and then you go up to bigger or do you just go, you know, the devil, you know, go right for it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I would say it totally depends on where the client's at. I've had clients who are um, already well-versed in intuitive eating, but maybe haven't learned how to embody it yet, who will come to me and be like, I'm ready to go, right? <laughs> and so they'll be like, okay, I'm going to buy all of the trigger foods this week and I'm going to practice. And so, and then I've had other clients who are like, this is really freaking scary for me. And so I'm going to, you know, I'm going to try like this one food and I'm going to, you know, then I'll move on to this other food. And and so I would say to this is like, to just to, to meet yourself where you're at um i can think of uh a client of mine that i worked with who um her trigger food was uh something called a cosmic brownie and so these are something it's a little debbie snack it's like this brownie that has these little candied um co- like candy coated crunchy things on top of them um, and they're super good and she um felt like she couldn't control herself around them. And we started to explore a little bit more about like, how come, like how come she couldn't control herself around them? And what we uncovered was that these were foods that she, the, these cosmic brownies were foods that she only allowed herself to buy when her children were in town from school. So they were away at college, they would come into town, she would buy these cosmic brownies for them, um, but then end up eating all of them. And so notice within that, there's inherently a scarcity thing. I'm only allowed to have these when my children come into town. And so when they're in town and the cosmic brownies are around, she's going to try to eat all of them, right? Because after the kids go away, she's not allowed to have them anymore, right? And so what we worked on is like, oh no, now these actually need to be something that you are buying consistently, right? This is not something that you're only going to buy when your kids are in town. You're going to buy them consistently. And so what she did, she added them to her weekly grocery list and she brought them into the house and, you know, she put them in the freezer because that's how she enjoyed them was frozen. And, and she allowed herself to eat one and, and maybe she had two, but like she started to over time neutralize that food and it no longer had this really intense pull on her anymore where she knew if she wanted a snack she could have a cosmic brownie but she could also have you know chips and hummus or carrot sticks and dressing or whatever it was she knew she had choice and that's what this work is really about is again putting you back in the driver's seat and knowing that you have choice so i have a question yeah because i've worked with people that you know are 
anxiety or depressed about comes from their weight. Mm -hmm. How do you advise the use of the scales? I mean, I've told people just throw those scales away. (laughs) Um, But but maybe that's not best for everybody. I, I'm, I'm a big proponent of throwing the scale away. If, if you, if, if you can, if you feel like from an energetic perspective, you can allow yourself to do that, throw it away, smash it, destroy it, do what you got to do to get rid of it. Because the thing is that, well, there's a lot of things I want to say about this. Um, and this is, this can feel really controversial for people to hear, but weight is not the best indicator of health. There are plenty of people that live in larger bodies, bodies that are above the, you know, like the quote unquote BMI um, overweight category who live totally normal and healthy lives um, and and feel deep shame about their bodies and are trying to change their bodies. And that actually ends up um, hurting their health more than anything. And so knowing that you know, people who live in larger bodies live just as long, if not longer than people in normal weight bodies um, is something that's really important for people to know that, you know, three quarters of people who are uh, classified as quote unquote obese are actually metabolically healthy. And this is like scientifically researched um, like studies, like all you have to do is Google health at every size or um, uh, yeah, like um, health and weight, and you'll get access to these these statistics that show you like, okay, weight is not always an indicator of health. And, and when we focus on weight as the motivating factor for taking care of ourselves or like nourishing our bodies, what happens is we go into that restriction mode. So if weight is the motivator, we are going to go into restriction mode. We're going to try to go into a diet. We're going to overexercise. We're going to do all of these things that we talked about in the first half of the show that backfire. And actually more often than not, you know, two thirds of people that lose weight will actually put back on more weight than when they started. So 98% of diets fail. So almost 100% of the time diets fail, but two thirds of the people who diet and lose weight actually put back on more weight than when they started. And so when we make the scale, the motivator, it actually hurts us way more than it helps us. How about the weight? You know, people will say, well, I, I don't weigh, but I can just tell by the way my jeans fit, mm. you know, and I'm my fat girl jeans today and I'm yeah. not happy about it. Yeah. I mean, how do you respond to that? Yeah. Um, you know, I would say that like, buy clothes that fit you. <laughs> like that's, that's the thing that like, I would always come back to with my clients is like, get rid of like, I, I'm always getting rid of clothes that feel tight on me. Like if, if I outgrow something, I get rid of it right away. It's it's not something that I hold on to in anticipation that I'll one day fit into it. Um, and and again, like that's that's another measurement. So I I say get rid of get rid of the measurements, whether it's the scale, whether it's the measuring tape, whether it's um, you know, your quote unquote big jeans or your skinny jeans, right? Get w- rid of the ways that you measure your body because the more that you do that, the more your motivation, your um, motivating factor for caring for your body is going to be from that weight centric perspective and that will backfire. Um, the work that I do with my clients, we call it weight neutral, right? Because the thing is, is that even though we're not focusing on weight, we, we do focus on health. Health is something that um, is important to me. It's important to many of my clients. And, and so we're focusing on, you know, what we can do 
for our bodies versus to our bodies, how we can eat a variety of foods, how we can manage stress levels, how we can move our bodies in ways that feel really good and get our heart rate up and make us feel strong, how we can sleep better, how we can have great relationships, um, how we can work on body image and how we're seeing ourselves. Like all of these things will lead to better health outcomes for you and not put this unnecessary pressure on you to have to shrink your body, um, knowing that that backfires 98% of the time. Well, talk to me about how you, you work with people on body image, because, you know, visualization is a tool that I use for a lot of things. I don't know that, would that be a tool that I could work with somebody on body image? Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I use visualization um, in my coaching programs with my business partner, um, especially when it comes to when a client feels like they won't have access to something they want in life because of the body that they live in, right? And so we do a lot of visualization work on how they can live the life that they want in the bodies that they're in today. Um, but body image work is is super complex. It's super nuanced. It's super individual to each person that you are working with. And I think the most important thing to remember is something I alluded to before is that it's rarely about the actual physical body itself and more about what we feel that body represents. And so, um, for example, if a client feels like they won't have access to um, or they'll, they'll never be able to be in a relationship, right? A relationship like a romantic partnership because of the way that their body looks, right? And so that makes them unlovable and unworthy, the work at that point is helping them access a place of worth and love within themselves outside of the way that their body looks. And so it's it's going deeper to what the body is actually representing for them. Um, and then the other thing that I would say is really key when it comes to body image work is noting that our body image struggles stem from a place of objectification, right? We are taught to objectify ourselves. We are taught to see our bodies as objects that exist merely for the viewing pleasure of others. And the thing is that our bodies are not objects. They're not, not machines. They're not, um, I, I, a lot of times I'll hear people say like, oh, my body is just a vessel for my soul or a vehicle for my soul. I'm like, no, your body's not a vehicle. Your body's not a vessel, right? Your body is a human being, not an object, Right. And when we think about our bodies as human beings, and, and this is something that I encourage my my clients to do is to actually refer to your body with the pronouns that you identify with. And so I refer to my body as she and her. My body's not an it. It's not an object. Right. My body is a human. She's a she. She's a her. Right. And when I'm looking at my body and I'm relating to my body in that way, it makes it so much more um yeah, more, much more empowering for me to, to care for her. I feel much more motivated to honor my body, to feed her in a way that that energizes and nurtures her, to move in ways that feel good, to, um, you know, rest when I need to rest, right? And that's like a game changer for most of the clients that I work with to start to think about their bodies less as this object that exists merely for the viewing pleasure of others and more as a human being who's worthy and deserving of love and respect and, and nurturing. You know, it's interesting when you were talking about the, it brought some thoughts to mind and because I work with a lot of clients that have pain and many times that pain comes from an emotional state, something that happened to them 
when they were a child um, and, and just something they grew up with. Uh, a, a client came to mind and, you know, her, she grew up with her father saying, you know, if you weren't so fat, you'd probably get further in life. And she has, a, she has a lot of pain, but it comes from the emotional criticism that she endured. Absolutely. Oh, that sounds so painful for this client that you worked with. And I've had, you know, worked with clients who've had similar experiences and it's so, so hard. Um, and our bodies will manifest uh, emotional pain or trauma um, as symptoms, right? Like symptoms, whether that's physical pain in the body or autoimmune condition or whatever it is, like our bodies have um, a way of manifesting that which we don't want to look at and process, right? Um, they'll hold on to it in different ways. It's, it's an intelligence that our bodies have. So, you know, it sounds like you get pretty personal with your body. Mm-hmm. How, how's she doing? Where, you know, how's she doing? Do you talk to your body? I do. Yeah, I do. Especially, I, 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 and I, sh- I should talk to her more, to be totally honest with you. Um, but I would say that because I, I shouldn't let it get to this point before I talk to her. But, you know, if I'm not feeling well or I have a headache or, you know, I'm I'm feeling um, just not well. I'll, I'll ask her, like, I'll, I'll usually like lay down and on my yoga mat and, um, you know, do some grounding and put my hands in my belly and just ask my body what she's needing in that moment. And, and I should do that daily. <laughs> um, but you know, sometimes I forget to do that. Uh, but yeah, like I'll, I'll listen to her and, you know, my body generally tells me what type of movement she wants, whether, um, she's wanting something really intense and like, you know, get my heart rate up and feel a little sweaty, or if she's wanting a gentle walk or a fast walk, or if she's wanting to be in nature or if she's wanting to breathe or whatever it might be. Um, I talk a lot about in my coaching practice as, as thinking about, you know, if your body's a human being, consider that your body is your original life partner. So outside of any romantic partnership that you have or friendship, your body was there for you first, right? It's your, your body is, is your original life partner. And at the root of any strong and healthy partnership and relationship are key ingredients of trust, honesty and communication, right? And so I build that into how I relate to my body and I, and I, support my clients in doing the same. Okay, I'm going to trust you. Okay, I'm going to communicate with you. Okay, I'm going to be honest with you. Um, And like loving and generous and all of the things like the way that I would treat my partner or, you know, my puppy, like I want to treat my body too. Well, you know, it's interesting because I'll check in with myself throughout the day. How are you doing, Lee? But more from a mental perspective, you know, and I could see myself starting to check in with my body, particularly, you know, why are you sore? What do you need? Maybe you don't need to go to dance jam again tomorrow. You know, maybe your body needs something more gentle. That's a a really kind of awakening for me. I always think about checking in on a mental level, but I I really don't on a physical level. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think that's also like kind of how we're, we're built. Like we've, we focused a lot on, you know, mental health as, as we need to, it's really, really important, but you know, like pendulum swings happen and sometimes we can overly focus on the mental and then forget the embodiment, right. And to it, because, because our bodies are, are how we integrate 
what we're processing on a, on a, on a mental level, right? Our bodies hold our emotions, our bodies hold our trauma. So these memories that we have, or, you know, big emotions that we have, our bodies feel that too, right? And so we can't just leave the processing up top. We got to like integrate it into the physical body as well. You know, there's a great book, The Body Keeps Score, and it talks about, and that is such a good book. And, you know, after I read that book, it made me stop and realize that your body, your body will tell you the story, Mm -hmm. but you've got to listen to it. Yep. Yep. And maybe, maybe, you know, it won't talk to you unless it knows how to. Mm -hmm. I mean, how do you get help people to get in touch with their body and start talking to their body? Yeah, I usually will start this in session with a client when I notice that a client is uh, being too up in their head. They're being too like, they're like, logically, I understand this, but like like, on on a body level, I'm not there yet. Um, I'll usually do some work to bring them back into their body. So having them close their eyes, having them breathe, having them do body scans. Um, I'll ask them if they're feeling like a big emotion or... Um, having a reaction to something that we're talking about in a session, I'll ask them, hey, where do you feel that in your body, right? Where do you feel that frustration in your body? And, you know, they might say in their throat, right? And so we'll be like, okay, like, let's close your eyes and let's put a hand on your throat, right? And let's breathe into that area and ask that part of you, right? Like, what, what is it actually wanting you to know? Or maybe it's in the belly, right? We're putting a hand on our belly, Sometimes it's like, oh yeah, my feet are feeling something right now. And so we're, we're, we're scanning the body and we're asking um, the body to give us her wisdom, her intelligence as we are, you know, processing and going through what, what we're going through together. How do people react to that? Generally well. I have some clients, like most of my clients are willing. Not all of them. Some of them are like, no, I don't feel like doing that today. <laughs> but most of them, um, you know, come to me with, uh, a, like at least a spiritual connection or, you know, having done some type of, of yoga practice or, you know, embodiment practice before. Um, and so they're a little bit more primed for something like that. Um, if I don't think they're primed for it, then I probably won't do it. <laughs> but, but generally my clients are. Well, you know, I was on your website and I, I didn't click on it, but I saw that you use journaling mm-hmm. to, as, as part of your approach. Tell me more about that. I would say that besides working with a coach, journaling is one of the most powerful ways to process and create awareness. Um, And the thing with a lot of these body image issues that we are confronted with is that uh, body shame is like, and, and diet culture is like the air we breathe, right? It's like the fish that doesn't know it's in water. That's how we are with diet culture and body shame. And it's like kind of our default programming. And so um, I do a lot of work around awareness with my clients and helping them understand, okay, where did these stories start, right? Who, when was the first time you remember learning that your body was bad or wrong, or there was something wrong with your body, right? Who would reinforce that story for you? And, and I find that giving them space to do journaling questions and prompts, like, is really helpful for creating awareness around, um, perhaps where some of these problems stemmed, um, and then 
creating awareness around what they feel they can do to move forward. Because the, the work I do as a coach is incredibly client-led, right? And I'm always guiding my clients back to themselves and asking them, what what do you think? What's the action that you want to take here? Um, because again, it's like, like with food, building trust with them and putting them back in the seat of authority. It's the same in their relationship to their body. I'm a, I want them to feel like they're in the seat of authority when it comes to the relationship with their body and the work that we're doing together. Well, it sounds like you help them learn how to appreciate their body. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Body appreciation is key. When we start to see ourselves as, you know, we are, we're, we both are a body and more than a body at the same time. It's like a both and, um, we, and we stop seeing ourselves as just these objects that are exist merely for the viewing pleasure of others. We get to have an appreciation for what our body does for us versus how our bodies look. Well, to me, the body image is something that starts, I mean, you know, look at that little baby, look at that fat little face, so mm-hmm. cute, you know, so cuddly. I mean, that body shaming and that body imaging starts from the moment that you're born. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. We do. <laughs> and it's interesting, like, you know, we, everyone's always like, we love a chunky baby. We love a baby to yep. have some meat, some meat on their bones. But then as soon as, you know, that kid starts going through puberty and their body starts changing, the story changes. Yeah, it certainly does. Doesn't it? But, but I think that, you know, we focused a lot on women, but we can't forget that men and boys do experience yep. this as well. And I mean, think about as, as a young man, you grow up, what are the images that you see? You see, you know, football players, bodybuilders, um, and not everybody, there's a lot of work that goes into that. And mm-hmm. not everybody even has the, the basis to, to form that. Yeah. So if the, for our male listeners out there, is there anything special advice you'd like to give them? Yeah, I think it, I, the the statistics on, on male's body image, I think um, about 40% of men struggle with the way that they look and, and that that's significant, right? And And I would say that the messaging is different, like the struggle might be the same, but the messaging is different, whereas women are taught to be perfect, right? We must have the perfect body. It's like men are taught to be strong. They must have a strong and fit body, right? Um, and so, yeah, like I would say the 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 advice, um, though the manifestation might be different, the, the advice would be similar is that remember that you exist more than just to be attractive. <laughs> you know, there's so much more to you beyond just your physical appearance. Um, You have so much more to offer. And if we can begin to value ourselves outside of our external appearance and, and feel that that's going to build our self-worth and our confidence, and that's going to show up in how we relate to other people, um, whether that's romantic partnerships or at our jobs or in our careers. Um, And it's a much more sustainable way to relate to ourselves than just how we look because how we look is always going to change. Like that's the thing. Like none of us are going to get out of this thing without aging, like, no matter how hard you try. <laughs> There's no magic pill. There's no. <laughs> so we've got a minute left for people that want to learn more about you, Holly, how could, how can they reach out to you? How can they find you? Yeah, I would say the best way to do that is you can either go to my website, which is just hollytoronto.com and Toronto is, is spelled exactly like the Canadian city, or you can check out my Instagram. I do a lot of work there. Um, and my Instagram is just holly.toronto. 
Well, I thank you so much for being with us today, Holly. I've learned so much. And basically, you know, it comes, really, it just boils down to you just have to reframe your thoughts about food Mm -hmm. and wrap your arms around it, embrace it, because we all know that we're in control. We're in control of the decisions that we make. So I've learned a lot. I know that our listeners have, and I'm going to pick up that book, Intuitive Eating, just to use for my future. Thank you so much. Thank you. On behalf of Lee Richardson and the Brain Performance Center, we want to thank you for listening. If you'd like to hear more episodes like this, visit us on iTunes, Google Play, Toginet, Stitcher, iHeartRadio,